Good morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our God. This morning, I invite you to go back in time just a little bit. Well, maybe more than a little bit. It's about 3,000 years. But let's go back to the 9th century BC. Israel. Israel is in crisis. The northern kingdom of Israel has split from the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah. Queen Jezebel and King Ahab are not following God in the north. Rather, they've chosen to follow Baal. Baal is the god of rain and the god of storm. And they're also worshiping his consort Asherah, the goddess of love and war. And so the background, excuse me, the story today is a battle of the gods. Elijah's god, Yahweh, versus Jezebel's god, Baal. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, predicts three years of drought. Since the people are worshiping Baal as the god of rain, then Yahweh is going to remind the people that Yahweh is actually the God who controls the rain, and he withholds it. So in, chapter, in 1 Kings chapter 18, this is towards the end of these three years, this time of drought. And now Elijah challenges, and this battle of the gods moves forward. He challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel at their worship spot on Mount Carmel. Their God against Yahweh, Elijah's God. And so all day the prophets of Baal call out to Baal to send fire to burn the sacrifices upon the altar. So Baal was the god of rain, but he was also the god of storm. So surely the god of lightning bolts can start a fire. After all, everything's completely dried out from the drought. It should be easy for a spark to ignite something. But the prophets of the Baal call out in vain. Nothing happens. So quietly at evening, Elijah gathers the people around him and he rebuilds the broken altar dedicated to Yahweh. And he places the sacrifice upon the altar. And in an apparent act of wastefulness, he instructs precious water to be poured out upon the altar and the sacrifice until the water fills the trench surrounding it. Then Elijah prays and God answers in fire. Elijah's God works a great victory, showing up in a great display of fireworks to reveal that Yahweh is more powerful than Baal. It's amazing stuff. The people of Israel declare the Lord, he is God. They get rid of the prophets of Baal, and Yahweh sends rain. Yahweh alone is the God of rain and of fire. Now, Elijah suspected that this mighty act would produce a tremendous amount of revival and renewal in Israel. He was sure that the people would rebel against Queen Queen Jezebel. After all, what more could the people want? The tide had turned. With the prophets of Baal gone, surely things would be so different now. 
Elijah was confident of success. In fact, he was so confident that he decided to travel to Jezreel. And he didn't just travel. Just imagine this. He wraps his robes up and he runs. He runs all the way to the fortress of Jezebel because he wants to be near when Ahab delivers the decisive news. When Ahab announces that it's time to stop worshiping Baal and to turn to Yahweh. How could there not be revival? How could there not be revolution? How could there not be a turning to God? How could there not be a party for Elijah as he is acclaimed a national hero? However, instead of being welcomed as a hero, for Elijah, his success quickly turns to apparent failure. I invite you to stand this morning as I read our reading out of 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. Ahab told Jezebel, all that Elijah had done, and how the prophets had been killed with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks and pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the winds. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. There came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel as king over Aram, and you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elisha as a prophet in your place. 
Whoever escapes from the sword of Heziel, Jehu shall kill, and whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How quickly life can change. The victory was absolutely amazing. The people acknowledged Yahweh. Elijah on the winning side. God showed up. Surely his confidence was understandable. The people would choose God. But instead, here we are, just a day later, and Jezebel and Ahab remain in power. And Jezebel turns her sights on Elijah. She threatens his life, and Elijah knows that these threats are not idle. She has killed before. So he flees to the southern part of the country, and he held into the wilderness of Judah, the southern kingdom. David had gone into the wilderness to escape from King Saul, so perhaps Elijah was thinking, huh, worked for him. Maybe escaping into the wilderness will work for me too. So Elijah goes into the wilderness to think about this task to which he's been called. And I'm sure he wonders, what in the world is God doing? Have you ever had that question cross your mind? Elijah's confused about his own task, about his own identity. What is he supposed to do as a prophet? He thought that a prophet was a person who calls people back to God through a show of power, but the plan hadn't worked. And what Elijah gets is new insight into his identity and into his role. Susanna Heschel suggests that the prophet is neither a messenger, an oracle, a seer, nor an ecstatic, but a witness to the divine pathos, one who bears testimony to God's concern for human beings. Elijah discovers that being a prophet is closely tied to seeing what God is like and seeing God's care, God's nurturing nature. And in the story of Elijah, we see God's concern for the individual and for the people, or we might say for the people shown in his care for the individual. And we're reminded that God invites us too into what God is doing, but the mission remains God's responsibility and not ours. And in fact, God wants to nurture us in the midst of our ministering to others. So let's just take a moment and reflect upon Elijah at this point in his life and his career. Elijah is legitimately tired. Elijah has every reason to be afraid. Elijah is uncertain and discouraged. Elijah feels alone. Put yourself in Elijah's experience for a minute, or perhaps you can realize that Elijah is a reflection of your own experience. There's times when we're riding high. We're getting good marks. We're completing our work. Our congregations are growing. Ministry's happening. We're feeling positive and on top of the world. But suddenly, sometimes through major things, sometimes through something quite minor, 
our world comes crashing down. We get a poor mark and it really shakes our confidence. We suddenly find that we're behind when we thought we were ahead. Someone in our family experiences a crisis. People leave the church. Volunteers disappoint. There's sickness, even death. We get exhausted. And it's okay for us to stop and take stock of where we are and admit that we're tired, afraid, uncertain, and discouraged. And so there in the wilderness, Elijah expresses his despair, God, take my life. I'd rather you take my life than Jezebel. Besides, I'm no better than my ancestors. Things were going so well, I thought that Israel was going to turn back to you, but I've failed, and I don't know what to do. Ever felt like Elijah? Not only tired, but depressed? Did you catch his cry? I'm no better than my ancestors. Have you ever said, I'm not going to make the same mistakes that my father did? I'm never going to do the same way, things the same way that my mother did. I'm not going to be like that last person at my workplace. I'm going to make better choices. Things are going to be different in my life. You try so hard. And you've had a lot of victories along the way, but sometimes it all catches up with you and you say, God, I can't do this anymore. I failed to live up to my own expectations, so I'm pretty sure I failed to live up to yours. The only way I see is to give up. Elijah wanted things to be different, but in that moment of discouragement, all he could see was that everything was wrong. And it was depressing. If that's where you're at this morning, admit your feelings. Admit your feelings to God and get some help from another person. We do have an option for counseling here at the Wellness Center. Take advantage of that. It's important for us to stop and acknowledge any time we're feeling depressed or discouraged or feeling like we failed. Or worse, we're a failure. But... Just as a word of encouragement, did you notice that Elijah, that God doesn't give Elijah a lecture? God doesn't correct. God doesn't contradict. God doesn't set the record straight. In fact, God says nothing at all. Instead, God acts. God nurtures Elijah. Nurture, it's a, it's a theme that we're doing um, in chapel lately. Nurture is defined as the process of caring for and encouraging the growth of another. It is providing the essentials, including food and drink within an environment of protection. This is exactly what God does for Elijah. First, God protects Elijah so that Elijah feels secure enough he can actually fall asleep. Second, the angel of the Lord Yahweh, God's self, provides food, water, and rest. God actively nurtures. God was there. And I'm not even sure that Elijah recognized that it was God's presence. So if you find yourself in that situation where you're discouraged, get some rest. And it's okay if you don't recognize that God is here right in this moment. Sleep, eat, process where you're at, 
ask for help. Elijah, feeling somewhat physically refreshed, but still spiritually and emotionally at a loss, travels far south to Mount Horeb. Why Horeb? Horeb is where Moses met God in the burning bush. Horeb is where God provided the Ten Commandments. Horeb is where God had made a covenant with God's people. So Elijah figures, hey, if God is anywhere, this is where I'm sure to find him. This is a strategy we sometimes use as well. And I encourage you to give it a try. Reflect upon God's faithfulness, not only to you, but to your community. Where have you met with God in the past? What has God done? What are the markers that you can point to or that we can point to as a reminder that God has been at work in our lives, in our congregations, and right here at Tyndale? So Elijah arrives at Horeb, and he finds a cave, and he spends the night. And then God speaks to him, and he asks, What are you doing here, Elijah? And God listens to Elijah's concerns. We, too, can be honest with God. We can get angry. We can cry. We can express our frustrations. We can tell God our disappointments. It's okay. God will listen. And then ideally, find a person, a spiritual director, a counselor, a trusted friend. Share with them as well. In time, God will respond. But if Elijah is any indication, God may not respond in the way that you expect. Elijah experiences power, the wind, the earthquake, the fire. But as you know, God was not in any of these. Instead, There's silence. John Kessler provides this description. A sound of finely ground stillness creates a space where Yahweh can speak. And now God asks Elijah the same question he asked him before. What are you doing here, Elijah? Do you notice God calls Elijah by name. God knows him. Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh. God is reminding Elijah that they have a relationship with one another. God cares about this man. God knows you. He knows your name. He cares for you and about you. And once again, God listens to Elijah's complaint. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. Elijah gives exactly the same answer he gave before. There was the wind and the earthquake and the fire. Elijah's caught in a loop. Have you ever been caught in your thinking? You're thinking the same situation. The same picture in your mind, the same words around again and again and again. Elijah is stuck. But in the silence, in the quietness, for the first time, Elijah can hear. And Yahweh leads Elijah in new directions. God encourages him with the thought that God still knows what's going to happen. And he says there's still going to be unfortunate events. 
ahead because God has given his people freedom not to respond. But God has not forgotten his people. He's still on a path of redemption. But the mission is not Elijah's responsibility. It's God's. But God invites him to participate, to bear witness to God's concern, and to share what he's learned with others. And they will continue to participate in God's continued ministry in Israel and beyond. And the encouragement of God equips Elijah to respond. And we don't know exactly what Elijah does, but we do know that he went and found Elisha to be another prophet. And we know that Elisha worked with a whole company of prophets. And we know that at some point, Elijah must have shared the story because we have it written down for us. But of course, as we read on in the Bible, we quickly discover that God's got a long-range plan. That God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, lived, taught, died, rose again, so that we could see what God looks like in the form of a person. And all of us are invited to come and respond. We're still in this battle of the gods, but we're invited and given freedom to choose to whom we will give our allegiance. And so when we go through the high, point, high points, we can say, God, here's my joy. I give that to you. And when we go through the low points, we can say, God, you can have this too. And God will bear those burdens with us. Because God will welcome our joys and discouragements, our success and our failures. In fact, the Spirit of God is called the Counselor or the Comforter, the one who nurtures us. So if you are carrying a burden this morning, I invite you to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Because God continues to nurture, and sometimes in the quiet of solitude and sometimes in the congregation, we're invited to come, express our frustrations, and to accept the rest that Jesus offers. So right now, just as we're closing, I invite you in these busy days of the semester to just stop. Put down your phones. We often look at our phones thinking that we'll feel better, but we don't. Because we see others who have what we don't, and we're filled with longing. Or we see others who don't have what we have, and we feel guilt. So put aside your phone and take a moment to stop. Breathe deeply. And pray along with me. God, we want to give you our allegiance. We ask that you will nurture our bodies, and our spirits. I'm going to give you just a few seconds to share anything quietly in your heart that you need to. Triune God, we thank you for food and drink. We ask you for rest. 
Lord, we bring you ourselves, our successes. We bring you our failures and our sense of failure. We thank you that you know us by name. And we ask that you continue to nurture us for the sake of Jesus and his name. Amen. I encourage you as the semester unfolds, try to get some rest. Look for God's provision. Think back on God's faithfulness. Share your story with others. Recognize that you are not alone. And remember, God knows you by name. God's mission invites your participation, but not your responsibility. And God is ready to nurture you through success and failure. You may go in peace.